0: And let's continue our endeavours to unlock the book of Colossians. We're getting there, brethren. It's our thirteenth study tonight. And uh, I promise we will conclude chapter 3 and even, even stick a toe in chapter 4. At least the first verse, chapter 4. But we are getting there. I Anticipate, perhaps after tonight, maybe just three more studies, and we will have done. The Apostle Paul's letter to the first century church in Colossae, some justice at least. Last time we thought about uh, Paul's new standards for the Christian. Tonight we're moving on and thinking about new standards for the Christian church. Let's read then Colossians chapter 3. From verse 12 and then into chapter 4, verse 1. <coughs> 3, verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, <laughs> holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. And be thankful Let the word of God, Christ, dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives. Submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, for they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when the eye is on you and to win their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong. And there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair. Because you know that you also have a master in heaven. This, friends, is the Word of God. Let's pray a blessing. Father, we thank you for these scriptures, illuminating scriptures. Challenging our scriptures. Help us, Father, in our endeavours tonight to unlock these verses. He was understanding both contextually what was Paul endeavouring to communicate to this church all those centuries ago. Also, perhaps more especially, allow the Spirit to take these words and apply them to our hearts and lives today. In 21st century Wales. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, in many ways, tonight we follow on from our studies, our discussions of last week in our respective anchor groups. New standards for the Christian Church. So, you should be way ahead of me. Way ahead. And in many ways, I'm trusting tonight's study will parallel your conversations and discussions of last week. In verse 12, Paul gives the Christian church, Christian believers, titles that were used of the Old Testament people of God. He says, you are God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. God's chosen people. Holy. And dearly loved. Friends. Does that not make you feel special. Tonight. Does that not make you. Your heart jump with joy. Within you. You are. God's chosen. People. Holy. That is set apart and dearly loved. Then Paul speaks about our attitude in the light of these titles. What should our attitude be understanding this? That we are God's chosen people. Holy and dearly loved. Sin, as we have already seen in these studies, brings all the fragmentation and disintegration within the confines of the Christian church. What damage our temper, our tongue, our lust can do. But by way of contrast, Paul outlines certain virtues. Virtues that are becoming the chosen of God. Virtues that are becoming the holy and the daily love of God. Virtues that bring integration into life. Wholeness to our personality. The virtue Paul starts with notice there is compassion. Compassion. I'm looking at a compassionate people. Am I not? Of course I am. This word compassion it is a word used of Jesus. Remember, when in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 36, it says he saw the crowds. And how did he respond? He had compassion. He had compassion on them. This, friends, is a strong word in the original Greek. It means to be moved to the very core of your being, to the very bowels of your being, to be literal of the translation, with concern. Christianity is a religion of compassion, a religion of kindness. The early church, was noted for its kindness to all sorts of people, particularly those on the fringes of society, those who are marginalised. The church, I believe, has a brilliant record for its inspirational care for the disadvantaged, for the blind, for the orphan, for for the poor, and we could go on and on and on, couldn't we? Throughout the history of the Christian Church, in spite of the knocks and the criticisms that it has and continues to receive, has any other society on earth such a track record of compassion? I think not. Because compassion is the natural expression of those who are chosen, who are holy. Who are dearly loved. And Paul refers to gentleness. I'm looking at gentle souls. Am I not? Now this could be translated equally as meekness. That is what Jesus spoke of, remember, when he said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Meekness. We've considered this recently on our Sunday morning, haven't we? Meekness. Is it weakness? No. Certainly not. I was thinking about this. A modern understanding of weakness. Meekness, rather. Meekness is like being at a set of, set of traffic lights in your new top-of-the-range Porsche car. A car that's capable of doing 0-60 in under 4 seconds. You are sat there at the lights. Next to you is a guy in a Robin Reliant, a beat of Robin Reliant. But he's revving his car's engine, enticing you to a race when the lights change. Meekness, my friend, is letting him beat you when you know only full well that you can easily beat him. That's meekness. Now I understand that, you see. Meekness is strength and power under control. You see? The portion has the strength, has the power. But it's under control. It's meek. It's humble. You don't cut people down to size just because you can when you are meek. You don't put people in their place just because you can when you are meek. You don't make people feel small and inadequate just because you are perhaps bigger and smarter than they are when you are meek. Meekness, gentleness. This is a characteristic, a virtue of those who are chosen and dearly loved. Next comes patience. I'm looking at the patient ones, am I not? Of course you are. Some of your eyes are twitching a little, I have to say. Patience. Long-suffering. The long fuse in contrast to the short temper. It is said of some people that they do not suffer fools lightly. Some folk don't even appear to suffer anyone at all, likely. But here is the quality of suffering fools and suffering everybody else gladly. For Jesus' sake. Suffering everyone gladly. For Jesus' sake. Now, let's be honest. At times we're all called to, in verse, suffer over a certain person or a personality trait or a, or a personality clash, clash or, a, or, or characteristic problems. We don't all get on with everybody all the time, do we? Now be honest. Be honest. I'm just looking around lovingly. <laughs> of course you don't. Of course you don't. Now, patience is bearing each other gladly For Jesus' sake. Jesus' patience and long-suffering are the reason why we're still here. He was patient with us. Surely it's incumbent upon us therefore to be patient with others, even when the others are getting up our nostrils, as they do from time to time. So as Jesus was patient with us, is patient, we are mandated to exercise restraint, to be truly cool with each other, even in the face of extreme provocation. And oh, we Christians, we are provoked at times, aren't we? Oh, to dwell above with those we love, that will be just glory. But to stay below with those we know, well, that's another story. (laughs) Patience. Next, we ought to forgive. Really? Forgive? How should I forgive? As the Lord forgave us. Says Paul, verses 13 through 14. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven me. And over all these virtues, Paul says, put on love which binds them all together. Forgiveness in verse 13 actually, literally means grace. Grace. So as God has graced you Paul suggests you should grace others. The grace of God. God's mercy, by his mercy he withholds from us what we deserve. The wrath of God. By his grace, he lavishes upon us what we don't deserve. All the fullness of the deity in Christ. And so Paul says, as God has lavished all the fullness of the deity in Christ upon you, so you should lavish, so you should show grace, so you should forgive everybody else. This theme of forgiveness is central to the Christian faith, of course. In Christ's death, God has gone to the ultimate end to forgive us, so that we can go free. But I'm aware. I've been a pastor for over 20 years. I'm aware of troubled lives, the troubled lives of people who will not forgive, who will not let go, who will not move on. These people, because of the unforgiving spirits, are damaged. And invariably they damage others. That's not God's purpose. Some of us need to forgive our children. Some of us need to forgive our parents. Some of us need to forgive that person who broke our heart or wrecked our lives, maybe all those years ago, and towards whom we still feel bitterness. And you might say to me, well, pastor, it's all very well you saying this, but you don't know what that person did to me. And friends, no, I don't, but I do know what your sins and mine did to Christ, that we could be free. And Christ has forgiven me, hallelujah, and he's forgiven you. And so Paul says, forgive, as you are forgiven. Yes, yes. Jesus said, Did he not in the measure that you apply to others, it will be apply, applied to you, measured unto you? Mm. Ouch. So if I withhold forgiveness, this is basically the reality, if I withhold forgiveness, then Jesus withholds his forgiveness of me. Oh. Over all these virtues, says Paul, verse 14, put on love. I love this. This is agape love. Put on the love that is patient and kind. Put on the love that is not jealous or boastful. Put on the love that is not arrogant or rude. The love that is the love of Christ that resides in every single child of God. By the infilling of the Holy Spirit put on love. These virtues, my friends, are natural expressions of those who are chosen of God, holy and dearly loved. Then Paul speaks about peace. Hallelujah. Jesus said, peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives do I give unto you. Let not your heart be troubled. Do not be afraid. Paul specifically speaks of peace as he speaks about the church. Verses 15 through 17. Notice when Paul says you and your in these verses, they are plural. They are plural. So he's not speaking about to individuals. He's speaking to the church. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now he's writing to a particular church at a particular time, the Colossian Christians. 1st century AD, he says, brethren of the 1st century church in Colossae, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And I think we can apply the same to Kuiper Mind Community Church. On the 6th of April 2017. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Of course we can know the peace of God individually. But here Paul is writing about a church. Full of peacefulness. There's a difference isn't there? You can have a church full of Christians. Who know the peace of God. And you can have a church full of peacefulness. And they're not essentially the same thing. I wonder, if people enter our church, do they feel a sense of peacefulness? We live in a warring, hurting, dysfunctional world, do we not? The local church, I believe, is meant to be a haven. It's meant to be an oasis of peace and healing for damaged people and damaged communities. Do people of Trashland come into this place and feel safe? A sense of peacefulness. The local church is the hope of the world. The assumption, of course, in this statement is that the particular local church is a place where the Lord Jesus Christ is truly central. Then the local church isn't merely a happy place, but it's a healthy place, functioning as it should, salt and light within her community. I I pray to God that this is the reality here. The alternative is tragic, is it not? Yes. When such a church is no different from the world outside of it. Fighting, gossiping, cold, shouldering each other, playing power games within the confines of the church, having turf wars about who does what and when and why and where. I know many churches like this. Paul is speaking to the church, not individuals, and he's saying to Koiper, my community church, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Someone has once wisely remarked the world at its worst needs the church at its best. I like that. Don't you? I like that. My prayer is, if not already, people will come within the confines of this church. doesn't necessarily mean, therefore, the physical building within the confines of the ministry of this church that spreads out like the tentacles of an octopus all over this community, wherever we as Christians might be, and discern the peace of God. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Amen. A haven. As well as being a peaceful church, the local church, says the Apostle Paul, is a biblical church. Verse 16, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. A biblical church. The word of Christ is central to the well being of the church. The Bible, my friends, too often these days is neglected, is overlooked, is ignored, and is sort the pedal of the Christian church. Yet in many churches today scripture is marginalized, the Bible teaching is neglected. Moreover, notice that the church of which Paul writes here is a worshipping church worshiping church. So the Bible believing church, the church that puts the word of God at the very center of what it is and what it does, is a worshiping church. I like that. I like that. It utilizes psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, says Paul. Wow. Isn't the Apostle Paul wonderfully balanced? Yes. How we've gone astray from this super balanced teaching. You get churches that only use the songs And the paraphrased songs. You've been to, to certain churches in the highlands of Scotland. You will have sat in such churches. Where there is no organ. There is no musical accompaniment whatsoever. A gentleman will stand up at the beginning. And he will recite a song. And the congregation will either recite it or sing it after. Some churches will only do that. It's fine, I suppose. Some churches will only sing the old hymns. Can't beat the old hymns. Particularly if they were hymns written before the 20th century. Do you know what I mean? Because before the 20th century, they were genuinely sanctified hymns. After that, dodgy, they little not have were dodgy one they Were they? Some, some churches will only sing contemporary songs. Paul puts, uses the expression here, doesn't he? Uh, of, of spiritual songs. Well, isn't there a balance here? Isn't the Apostle Paul bringing it all together and saying, this is the healthy church, this is the Bible-believing church, not a church that polarizes between one of the extremes, thinking that they are right and everybody else is wrong, but a church that lovingly embraces all the the multifaceted dynamics of, of worship. This is the church that the Apostle Paul is seeking to say, this is the church that's blessed. Isn't that isn't that something? So if we if we, if we recite a psalm, hallelujah, or if we sing an old hymn, hallelujah, and if we sing a contemporary song, hallelujah, because God blesses them all. <laughs> and, and this is the balance here. This is the Bible-believing church. It's a worshiping church. Peace and unity in the local church are highly prized and carefully guarded, or they ought to be. This is the church that the Apostle Paul speaks of here in these verses. And then in verse 17 he says, as we endeavour to be wisely eclectic, as we endeavour to be flexible and yet testing everything by scripture, Paul says, whatever we do, whatever you do, whatever we do, Whether in word or deed. Do it all in the name of Jesus Christ. Wow. So if we're doing anything. That's not in his name. Paul says. Stop it immediately. Stop it immediately. There is an awful lot going on. Within the confines of the Christian church. That is not. In the name of Jesus Christ. In the name of tradition. Certainly. In the name of denomination. Or persuasion. And preference and priority. Certainly. In the name of human agenda. Certainly. In the name of selfish pursuit. Absolutely. All these things. Says the Apostle Paul. Are to no avail. They are not blessed. Whatever you do. He says. Do it in the name of Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is a Christian church the Apostle Paul exhorted the Colossians to be. This is the Christian church the Holy Spirit is exhorting per my Community Church to be. And very quickly, Paul moves on to talk about marriage. Oh, that's a puzzling move, isn't it? One minute he's talking about worship in the church, next minute he's talking about marriage. Where on earth Paul is the link? Has he gone off on a tangent here? Is this something of a theological afterthought? I don't know. He's just said, whatever you do, whatever you do, do it all in his name. So we should do marriage in his name. Shouldn't we? Of course. Because whatever we do as a Christian. Is an act or ought to be. An act of worship. I raise my hands in worship on a Sunday. I worship God. I walk down the street. And talk to uh, the lady behind the counter. In the spa shop down the road. And I worship God. Or I ought to be. And I practice from day to day my marital relationship with my wife, and that, in itself, ought to be an act of worship. You can't divorce one from the other, just because it doesn't happen to be within the confines of an evangelistic and, and, uh, uh, church building. "Oh. So Paul speaks about marriage because it's whatever you do," he says. Verses 18 through 19, he addresses married people. Now the assumption is perhaps there were issues amongst the married folk of the Colossian church. Issues that were displeasing to the, to, to the Holy Spirit. Issues that, that have come to the Paul, the Apostle Paul's attention. Ah, some of us reading these verses are single, granted, widowed or divorced. However, we ought not to think that we can simply skip over this section. We all need to uphold the sanctity of marriage, especially in this day and age when the sanctity of marriage is in such a significant attack. The Christian church is under pressure to be liberalised in the issue of Christian marriage. Why? Because it is now politically incorrect to advocate Christian principles, New Testament principles, Old Testament principles on marriage. On hmm. the other hand, married people need to be far more sensitive and perhaps far more aware of the singles around them. and are sure that they're always included in the, in the church family and they're, uh, and they're not just there to, to babysit for, for some of us. Um, singles should never be the, the butt of insensitive comments. I was passing a conversation recently Oh, it broke my heart. I wish I hadn't heard it. I wasn't listening out to I heard someone say to one of our singles, and when are you going to find a nice young man then? I went, ah. That's not, not the mindset we should have. If we are married, however, then this passage speaks specifically to us. Let's begin by looking at this word, submit. I think I'm over-prepared tonight. Don't know. Submit. There are different ways of expressing ourselves through language on there. For example, I hit. I hit is what we call the active. I am hit is what we call the passive. But when I hit myself, this is called the reflexive. Or in the Greek, it's better known as the middle voice. This word submit here is in the middle voice. Now that's significant. That's significant. Submitting to her husband is what the woman does herself. Not under duress. Not because she feels that she has to. She does it because she wants to. It's something that she willingly and deliberately does. This isn't a question of female inferiority, friends. Not a single bit of it. Both man and woman are created equal in the sight of God. You read Genesis chapter 1, 27 and 28. And both man and women, by God's grace through faith in Christ, become new creations, Galatians 3, verse 28. They are equal. Rather, this is a matter of how things operate within the confines of the whole. And the feeling here is one of order. The woman finds God's order for her own life, domestically and otherwise, in submitting to her husband. Now, I realise that in today's culture, such talk is like the proverbial red rag to a bull. However, if part of the idea of submitting is finding order, isn't order in our homes an order amongst God's people, an order in our lives, isn't that order desirable? Of course it is. That's why our communities these days are, are being overrun by disorderly conduct. Husbands <laughs> don't get off lightly at all. In fact, the Apostle Paul piles the weight on. He says, Husbands love. Love your wives. And of course, when he wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 5 and verse 25 of Ephesians, he says, Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Ouch. How much did Christ love the church? Well, he died for the church. Enough said. Enough said. Husbands, you die. For your wife. <laughs> Very quickly. Parents and children. Verses 20 and 21. He says, children, obey your parents in everything. Oh my. I tried this many times with my kids when they were teenagers. <laughs> look, what the said. And they just raised their eyebrows and said, oh, shut up, darling. Oh my God. Fathers, do not embitter your children. Now, friends, in the original Greek, you cannot help but see how reciprocal these two are. One depends upon the other equally so. So if I expect my children to obey me in everything, then I ought to never embitter my children. They are wrong. Parallel, it's reciprocal. Deb and I were very young parents, chronologically speaking. We had our old first daughter Tina when we were just 23 years of age. And we had Ruth just 14 months later. And we greatly appreciated the advice of many, not least uh, of Dr. James Dobson, who produced a course in the 1980s, Focus on the Family. Do you remember it? Focus on the Family. Great course. It was Americanized, I grant you that, but uh I's young parents greatly benefited from Christian biblical teaching about parenthood. One of his sessions was on, and I quote, How to bend the will without breaking the spirit. And he used this verse how to bend the will without breaking the spirit of a child. Uh, and yes, children obey your parents. But fathers, that's uh, fathers mothers, by the way. That's not just uh, masculine. That's neuter. Parents, don't embitter your children. they so both hands. Not an eye all. I suppose this course by Dr. Dobson will be somewhat outdated these days, but it has occurred to me recently that many young parents today are floundering, aren't they? Looking for advice, looking for help, looking for support, and perhaps the Christian church should be there for them. And we're not. We're not. We're not there for them. Maybe we ought to be. Paul then goes on to pretty well conclude this section by talking about the workplace context. He's addressing slaves, the workplace. In June 1981, I began my working career as a civil servant. What was in those days the Department of Employment. I tried my best to feel enthusiastic with the clinical duties that were given me your Then I discovered verse 23. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Ooh, that came like a bolt out of the blue and hit me between the eyes one Sunday night when Billy Campbell preached in our church. I was a different employee the following Monday morning in the office, a different employee. And you know what, my friends? I was a transformed man. Because I suddenly went to work realising I wasn't working for the government. I wasn't working for my superior supervisor. I was working for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And with that mindset, not by trying so much, but with that mindset, I was promoted three times in three years. Isn't that amazing? Because I was working for Jesus. It, was, it transformed my, my working day completely. That's what Paul says here. Nothing is too small, nothing is too humble, nothing is too insignificant, my friends. If it's done for Jesus, all old him. I used to sing, little is not, little is much when God is in it. Labor not for wealth and fame. Little is much, my friends, when God is in it. Remember in the first instance these words were written to slaves. Slaves. Slaves who had no legal rights. Slaves who enjoyed no employment legislation to protect them. Slaves who had no union shop stewed in the corner. Paul's addressing slaves. Submit to your employers. Your masters. He then actually addresses masters on the other side of the coin. So if we're masters, if we're employers. Jesus says be careful how you rule over those under you. Just how many of us have been stung by so-called Christian tradesmen <laughs> who did a shabby job and left us with a big bill as they walked out the door whistling their choruses as they went. I've been stung. Whatever you do, says Paul, they were all as though The Lord Jesus Christ was your employer. (laughs) That puts a different perspective on it, doesn't it? So as Paul concludes setting out these new standards for the Christian and for the Christian church, friends, what is the secret to, to this whole new way of life and living? Well, here's a sermon outline for you preachers. For the secrets mentioned Three times. With a slightly different slant on it. Chapter 3, verse 1. It says that in the past, we were raised with Christ. Chapter 3, verse 3. It says that in the present, our lives are hidden with Christ. Chapter, four, chapter 3, verse 4. It says that in the future, we will appear with Christ in glory. Notice the continuity. Raised with Christ hidden with Christ, will appear with Christ in glory. The common denominator, my friends, to this kind of successful life as those who are called of God, holy, chosen, is Christ. Is Christ. Paul is not exhorting us to be some kind of supermen, superwomen. For we cannot, with our very best endeavors, our very best efforts, live like this. Paul says, the secret is on Christ. is in Christ. In Christ. Christ in you. The hope of glory by his Holy Spirit. The story goes that Muhammad Ali was taking a plane journey while he was still heavyweight boxing champion of the world. Before the flight took off, as is the custom, the stewardess came along the aisle and said, Mr Ali, would you please fasten your seat belt? But Maham Ali looked at her and said, Superman, supermen don't need seat belts. She looked at him and said, Superman didn't need a plane. Now you fasten your seatbelt. <laughs> Friends, many Christians fail. Many Christians fail because they're trying to be super Christian. We can't live this way. It's entirely contrary to our human nature. That's why Paul goes to great lengths in all of his exhortations to say that you are raised with Christ. You are hidden in Christ. And you will appear in Christ is all about Jesus. Having a relationship with Christ means that in our workplaces, in our marriages, in our family lives, amongst our children, in our community, and in our churches, the life of Jesus by the Holy Spirit is so coursing through our veins that in all things, Jesus has the preeminence in that daily event that we call life. Let's pray. Father we thank you for these extraordinary scriptures and we pray your blessing as your spirit takes the word and applies it to our hearts and lives. We thank you that the secret, the answer is Jesus. And we bless you Jesus for your presence here with us tonight by your spirit in Christ's name. Amen.